0: I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The word of the Lord. Thank
1: you. Please join with me in prayer. Father, again, we pause in your presence, uh, even as we did just a moment ago, but having just heard Your Word read, Um, we do not want to let any of it um, get past us, any of it just kind of fall to the ground as we um, somehow fail to hear. And so, we look to You, knowing You are a God who loves to give us good things, we look to You asking that You would give us the good thing of being able to hear what You are saying to us, that You would speak to our very souls, that You would draw us to Yourself as we hear Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to begin with just a very basic question. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's a simple question, but I think it's one that people are generally confused about in our day, at least if you look at different surveys. In past times, people might think about what a Christian is, and one of the ways they would speak of it is in terms of belonging, belonging to the Christian church. But in our day, in America, more than half of those who identify themselves as Christians don't attend church even once a month. Others might speak about the way of Christianity, that there's a certain kind of behaving that's involved with Christianity. But again, in our day, if if you look at surveys, more than half of those who identify themselves as Christians do not ascribe to the biblical sexual ethics, saying that casual sex is acceptable. Probably the most common answer for what it means to be a Christian has to do with belief. But again, if you look in surveys in America, more or almost half in this case of those who identify themselves as Christians say that Jesus is a great teacher, but He is not God. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I, I won't pretend to speak for all the different people who identify themselves as Christians about what they meant. But it does seem that if there's confusion, a good place for us to go is to see what the Bible says about what being a Christian is. And while there are probably different ways we could answer that question, one of the simplest answers to the question that the Bible gives us is that a Christian is someone who believes the gospel. A Christian is someone who believes the gospel. Now, with a simple answer like this, of course, it needs unpacking. Certainly, talking about believing, we would want to speak about how it's not just some sort of intellectual agreement, but something involving all of life, and we'll do that later on in in this series. But this morning, I want us to start thinking especially of the, the second part of that, someone who believes the gospel. You might have noticed, if you're part of this church, we talk about the gospel a lot. So, what do we mean By the gospel? And one of the best places to go to answer that question is the book of Romans. As Nick said before, we are beginning a new series looking at Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's a letter that was written a little bit more than two decades after Jesus rose from the dead, which if you think about it, is is not that long after. I mean, if you were around and you might remember September 11, 2001, if you remember that, that's roughly the time period we're talking about from the time that Jesus rose from the dead. And now Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And over that time, News has slowly spread. Obviously, you didn't have network television, so it's not like everyone knew in the moment, but news slowly spread through people such as Paul about this strange event that took place in Jerusalem, in this this backwater city. And as the news spread from one town to another, people began being baptized, and, and small groups of Christians, small churches sprang up throughout the Roman Empire. Churches that did not have a New Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet, did not have any church tradition. They were just barely figuring out what it meant, this new thing that had happened to them. And, and one such church is the church in Rome. It's a church that Paul had never visited when he's writing this letter, but it's a church that he knows what they're facing. They are living in the shadow of the emperor, where there is great pressure to say not that Jesus is king, but the emperor is Lord. And what's more, he knows that this church is a church that is struggling in terms of divisiveness, where you've got two groups that have a hard time agreeing with each other. And so Paul goes, what do I do to help this church? And his answer is simple. I'm going to tell them the gospel. We see that pretty clearly is what his intent is throughout probably the beginning and the end, but you see that from the very outset. So this is a letter, and, and let me just tell you a little bit about kind of letters in that time. They, they kind of were written a little bit like our emails are now, where you've got like a, a from, a to, you might have a subject, and you have a brief greeting, and they're all fairly quick. You know, from Jeff to my friends at the Trinity, here's what I'm talking about, hello. That, that's kind of how it begins. Notice that that's not how Paul begins. I mean, he does have from Paul, that's how he begins, and when you get finally to verse 7, he says, two, but his subject, in the subject line of his email, he writes like three paragraphs. You know, so Paul called to be in the gospel, set apart for the gospel. Now, let me just tell you about the gospel for a little while. And he's setting things up because that is what he wants to do. The letter to the Romans is he's wanting them to understand the gospel more deeply and apply it to their hearts." And so, if we're asking the question, what is the gospel, here's a great place to begin, to look at his kind of opening summary, and before we do that, it's probably worth just kind of backing up and saying, that word gospel now is almost exclusively used in Christian context, but in the time of, of Paul writing, it was a word that was just generally used. It had the idea of an announcement. Usually an announcement of something that happened that was a good thing. Sometimes that was a political thing, like maybe an emperor has taken the throne or maybe some political or some military victory has happened, but it was an announcement of some good thing that happened. And notice Paul is not just talking about any gospel. He he says, I want to talk to you about the gospel of God. God's gospel, the gospel that's about him, the, the gospel that comes from him. This is a special announcement of something that has happened. That's what I want to talk to you about. And then he goes on to explain what he means. And that's what I want us to consider this morning as we're trying to answer the question, what is the gospel? Here in this opening subject paragraph, we notice at least three things. We notice that this gospel is an announcement that something real has happened. We notice that it's an announcement that what happened has changed the world. And finally, we know that it's an announcement that something that has happened that is personal. So first, we see that something real has happened. That's what this gospel is an announcement of. It seems to me, uh, in the way that we kind of relate to the world around us, you can kind of almost divide it up into two categories. There are some things that we just kind of classify as things that are real. There's the reality stuff like math, two plus two is four and and there's 365 and a quarter days that the earth takes to go around the sun. Science, right? Or, or history, civil war happened in the 19th century. These are things that are just real whether we think about them or not whether we believe them or not they they stand outside of us as just existing and the nice thing about that is is they're shared all of it's, it's real for all of us which means we can talk about it we can debate we can together try to understand what really happened there's reality then of course on the other hand there are preferences preferences are important too but they're different Preferences are things that we learn about ourselves, Uh, you know, we might say, I like having cream in my coffee, or I like a quiet night reading a book rather than a, a big party, or we might have political preferences, I prefer small government. These are things that are true of ourselves, which means they're not shared, right? Each of us have our own distinct preferences, and that means you can't really argue about them. If I say, I like Mexican food better than Italian food, someone can't say, you're wrong, Italian food is better. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Preferences are each our own. I bring this up because when it comes to religious belief in our day, that has moved to the realm of preferences. So, in a recent survey of Americans, more than 60% said Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not objective truth. It's saying it's not reality. It's, it's preferences. Which I think makes sense of the way that we generally talk about religion. Religion is one of those things where it's like, you have your thing, and I hope it works for you. I have my thing, and it works for me. And we don't need to debate. We can just allow each of us to do our own thing. Which totally makes sense if this is a preference. I have my favorite restaurant you have your private restaurant, that's great. It wouldn't make sense, of course, if we're talking about something that's reality. You can't say, I have my own personal law of physics, you have your personal law of physics, whatever works for you. No, that that doesn't make sense. When we're talking about reality, there is a reality, whatever you think about it. But our culture sees religious belief as preference. And that is where I want us to first notice a significant difference about what the Christian claim is. Because the Christian claim is very clearly saying that something happened that is real, that is open to examination because it happens outside of us, something happened in history. We see that in a few different ways. First, notice when Paul speaks about this announcement, this gospel of God, he speaks of promises that happened beforehand. And he says, through the prophets, and he's not just talking about generic, oh, prophecy is always said. There's people that he's mentioning, people that we actually have the writings of that lived hundreds of years before Jesus. We have the written records of Nathan telling David that there was going to be a descendant of David who would be a great king who would be called the son of God. We have that. We have Isaiah, who was a historical figure who lived 300 years after Nathan, 700 years before Jesus. We have his writings, and and the writings telling us that this great king is going to be someone who's known to have a a close relationship with God, who will be known for his righteousness, and who will somehow take the sin away from his people. We have that in here, right? We have a hundred years later, Ezekiel, another person that we know lived in history, and we have his writings, him saying that somehow through this king, God's people would experience a kind of resurrection from the power of the Spirit. You can see it and look it up. These are things that happened in history hundreds of years before Jesus. And the claim is an historical claim that this announcement is that these writings that were written by real people in a real time have now been fulfilled. And what's more, we see that this is an announcement about a person in history. Verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David. We're talking about a human being, Jesus, who we know his lineage. We know that his great-great-great-grandfather was David. We have his genealogy of his... The son of the son of the son. We we know his his line, and and we know he was born at around three B.C. We know that he was born into a town you can visit today in Bethlehem. We have people who were witnesses who spoke of this man Jesus. This is not this is not Hercules we're talking about here. We're just kind of a legend that we all kind of think is a fun story. We're talking about something that happened, and specifically, it's focused this gospel announcement is on a real historical event. Not only was it concerning his son who was descended from David, but he was declared to be the son of God, or probably a better translation, he was enthroned as the royal son of God in power by the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a story that we tell to let ourselves know that You can start again with something new no what is being said in the bible is the resurrection was something that happened in history that if you were a news reporter in the time that it took place you could walk into the tomb and see there is no body you could interview hundreds of different people who said yes i have seen the risen jesus embodied i have talked with him he has appeared to me multiple times and some of those witnesses will end up dying for their testimony This all happened. The first thing we need to understand is this gospel is an announcement of something that is real. And and of course, you can question its claims, you can examine whether what it's saying is true or not. That is the way reality works. In fact, it's appropriate for us to examine that, but what we can't do if we're going to take what the Bible says seriously is treat it as just something inspirational something that's a story that warms our heart or gives us a good sense of how to live, something that maybe gives us some vague sense of transcendence. No, this is a claim that's bigger than that. This is a claim that something happened that is real. And secondly, if we look at what Paul is writing about the gospel here, we recognize that he says that this thing that happened that is real has transformed the world. so, as you might have noticed, it zeroes in on the resurrection. This is the focal point of speaking of what happened, what the gospel is announcing took place. Sometimes when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, we kind of tell it like it's a hero story with a happy ending. He, he was a great man, and then he was killed, but yay, he rose from the dead. And that is true, but that doesn't quite get us to the gospel. Other times, and more accurately, we'll speak of how when Jesus did this, it wasn't just for him, but he conquered Death itself, like we just sung about a little while ago. And that's true, but that still doesn't get us all the way. When the Bible speaks about Jesus rising from the dead, it says something bigger than that happened. Something altogether new began. We are not supposed to imagine that early on Sunday morning, God sees the broken, dead body of Jesus and just does a slight repair job of recognizing where maybe the heart's not working anymore or recognizing there's this and he fixes that so, that so his body can just kind of keep going like it was before. No, what we're supposed to understand is that what God did was he breathed something entirely new into the body of Jesus. Like... As you might know, if you know anything about kind of Christian teaching, the Bible teaches that at the very beginning of time, before anything else was, God spoke. He said, let there be light, and when he spoke, what was once nothing suddenly became something. And what Scripture teaches us is in the same way, on early Easter morning, God spoke and he said, let there be life. And it wasn't just that Jesus' heart started beating. It's that Jesus' body was transformed into something new. This body of death became a new body of life. And as His body was resurrected, a new creation began. A a new world started with the resurrection where Jesus is now the king of this new kingdom. There was a radical change that took place at the resurrection. And it is that radical change, I think, that makes it so hard sometimes for us to understand, to understand the gospel, to be able to explain the gospel. Because honestly, we don't do very well understanding radical change. And when we don't understand it, we also have a really hard time believing it. Most of the time when we're talking about changes, we're talking about something that's incremental, and that means we have categories that allow us to process. Think about the way that technology works that way. So, in the middle of the 19th century, people first started learning how to communicate with the telegraph. You know, it was kind of the ancient text messaging. You know, a few dots, long distances, and wow, we're able to kind of communicate like that. And then a little bit later, people learned how to use the telephone and the radio, which is like the telegraph, except we now get to hear voices and, and music. And then a little bit later, you have movies and TV, which is like the radio, except now you get to see things moving as well. And then a little bit later, you have the personal computer, which is like the TV, except now you get to talk to it and change it. And then you have the internet, which is with the computer, except computers can talk. And then you have the smartphone, which is the internet in your hand. Each step, we have the category to understand it from what went before, right? Imagine, though, if for some reason, somehow, by some miracle, you were able to transport back in time to the 1300s and to speak in a way that people can understand in terms of the language to some small English hamlet, to some serfs, some farmers and their wives, and you tried to explain to them 2023 America. And you started talking to them about kind of how it was. There's this thing, electricity, where it's like we kind of capture lightning and send it in ropes to different houses and allows you to i don't know suck up the dirt really powerfully from your your rugs and and listen to Taylor Swift and and also powers all the all the all the black rectangles, all these black... You know, we had so many black rectangles. There's the big black rectangle and, like, a medium-sized rectangle and even a small one. And and if you press a button, suddenly it's like a window where you, you, you get to see things like the Kardashians and cat videos. And, and, and then you try to explain it, and you just see these, like... And, and then some people are like, what sorcery is this? And then others are just, like, completely skeptical because, of course, that's just... Nonsense. There, there are no categories for someone in the 1300s to understand because the things have changed just so much. And so it's really hard to believe. And I want to suggest to you that when we're talking about what has happened with the resurrection, we're like the 13th century or the 14th century farmer and his wife. It is just, it is so, so big. We... We live in a world that has rules that, we op- that operate, that even if we don't like them, it makes things predictable. We know that bodies, as they get older, they get older, they age, they decay, they end in death. We don't have to like it, but at least we can predict what's going to happen. We know that every society Every society, no matter how idealistic it is, always has a dark underbelly. There's always going to be people who are poor. There's always going to be people who are taken advantage of. There's always going to be injustice. We don't have to like it, but it's there. We know that that individuals will make mistakes. To err is human, we say. And not only that, they will make make hurtful mistakes. And, And we know that in this life, God will sometimes be confusing. Suffering will make things feel like God is distant. We don't have to like it, but it's predictable. That is how things are. That is the law of how this world works. And when Jesus rose from the dead, a new world, a new creation, a new reality came about with altogether new rules. Now, the human body that Jesus takes on, it, it, never, it never runs out of steam. It doesn't age. It does decay. It's, it, it's, it's filled with power and life and will not die. Now in this new reality, Jesus, having risen from the dead, says all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He is the king of this new kingdom and the society that he's building is one with no dark underbelly. It is one where the the poor and the weak are lifted up and made strong. It is one where war will come to an end, where there will be no corruption, where there only will be justice. And and within this, this new reality where death reigned and sin reigned, now we're told that grace reigns. So that whatever a person has done in their past, however much they might feel distant from God, it is all forgiven. And, and, and God's face smiles upon them. And, and in this new reality, rather than this fractured, broken selves, we find that human beings are given themselves back and they're whole free from addictions, free from error, free from being able to, free to be able to do what they've always been meant to do to love God. This is this new reality that began when Jesus rose from the dead. And Scripture says that that right now we're in a strange time where there's this overlap, where what we see is the old reality, but there's this new reality that is there. It's hidden, but it's still at work in the hearts of people, and one day it will be seen. And if you say, I am having a hard time understanding what you're saying right now, And if you say, honestly, I'm having a hard time believing what you're saying right now. That's exactly the point. The change that we're talking about is bigger than what happened between the farmer in the 14th century and us today. So, of course, it's going to be beyond our understanding. Something enormous happened when God said, let there be life. And Jesus rose from the dead and a new creation began. But what we need to recognize is it is real Just because we can't understand it doesn't make it any less real. The claim is that something happened that we can examine. It exists in history, and in it, everything changed. That is the announcement the gospel is making. But there's one more piece that we see as Paul is trying to summarize the gospel here that might even be the hardest part for us to accept. And that is not only is this an announcement of something real that happened, something that changed the world, but it's an announcement of something that happened for you. So you'll notice after Paul speaks about the resurrection, that is not where he ends his summary of what's true about the gospel. He goes on to talk about how because of the resurrection, he has been given a mission through whom we received grace and apostleship. He has been sent by God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name amongst all the nations. See, when Jesus came into this world, when he died and he rose again, and he began this new reality, he didn't just do that for himself. He did this to rescue the lost. He did this to rescue people throughout the world who've been broken by sin, who are weighed down by guilt. He did this to draw everyone in to his kingdom, this new reality. That's what Paul is saying. I'm going wherever I can to bring about the obedience of faith so that people might say, Jesus is my king and become part of this kingdom. And it says, and anyone who is, a new cre- is in, in Christ is a new creation. Because what happens, we are told by the Bible, is, is when someone places their faith in Jesus... There's a way that they become so deeply connected to to their new king that we're told that whatever Jesus has experienced and receives, those people get as well. That that Jesus, who has been given a new resurrection body, that resurrection body will be given to all who place their faith in Jesus. That just as Jesus has begun this this new society, this new reality, all those who trust in Jesus are part of that new kingdom as well, are being made whole, are being brought into this children of God experience, are are living under grace and are experiencing the forgiveness of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what Paul is seeking to do. I want want people throughout the world to believe because when they believe, something happens happens to them, and they move from that old reality into the new one. But I want us to see something more, because he doesn't just talk about seeking to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations. Notice what he says next. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You believers in Jesus who are called? In other words, when Jesus did what he did, and he did for people who are lost, it wasn't just him kind of providing something so that anyone who wants to, you know, like sometimes if you're at work and someone's says, hey, I brought donuts, anyone who wants a donut? Jesus didn't just, hey, I brought salvation, anyone who wants salvation. It's not that generic. Notice it says, God called you. When the gospel is spoken, when the gospel is heard, sometimes something extraordinary takes place. Sometimes when we hear it, there is an inner resonance, there is a weight to it that we feel in our souls where a part of us realizes this is real. And what scripture tells us is sometimes when that is happening, what God is doing is he's actually reaching out and claiming that person and saying, You are mine. I am calling you to myself. I have known you from before time began, and I claim you as my own. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, All of you, all of you who believe in Jesus, you have been called by God. He has personally, the creator of the universe who has existed for all eternity, knows your name. He knows your favorite ice cream. He knows your life. And he says, I want you. If you know anything what I'm talking about here, if you've ever experienced that sense of, yes, this is real, if you found yourself being brought to faith, whether it's in a moment or growing up as a kid, you need to understand that this was not an accident, that the God of the universe set his love upon you and said, I want you. Notice that's actually where Paul goes in the next verse when he's continuing to speak to these Christians. He says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, that God has this vision of who you are becoming, that you are his holy people. If we only understand the first two parts of the gospel, we don't understand this part, we don't understand the gospel at all. If we only understand that something happened, that's important to know. It happened. It's real. If we only understand that something big happened, that's important. Things were changed, but that's where we stop. We don't understand it yet. It is only when you recognize that God did this for you, that somehow, even though there are billions of people in this world, that God knows you, that when Jesus died, He died for you, and He has claimed you for His kingdom to belong to Him. That, when you begin to understand that, that is when you start understanding this gospel, And I wonder this morning, if even now, as we're talking about the gospel, if the very thing that I was talking about might be something that any of you are experiencing, that if there's in any of you right now this sense of a resonance, of that this is important, that there's something significant that we're talking about here, I want to I raise the question with you, could it be that God Himself is calling you that God himself is laying his loving claim upon you, saying, I want you. And whether that is something you're hearing for the first time, or if that is something that we've heard again and again, there is a response that we're invited to as God says, this is true. As he announces, this is what I have done. It's real and it's for you. His invitation is to us to respond by believing, by accepting, by turning from the lies and turning to the God who has loved us for all eternity. I want to invite us to do that now for people who have been Christians for all their lives or people who maybe right now are feeling like God is calling them. Let's use this as a time to talk to God to acknowledge where we have sinned and turned away from Him, and to place our faith once again in Him. And I will lead us in a time of public confession in just a moment, but we can spend some time quietly first.